Hey, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland. It's my privilege uh, to bring you part two of a teaching series that we're doing this fall. Um, the name of the teaching series is Worth the Risk. Uh, the subtitle is uh, Making Commitments That Lead to Life. Greg did a great job last week challenging us that the way that you shape a life is not standing outside of commitments and trying to evaluate them. The way that you build a life is by committing to meaningful things and sticking in those things. Um, and we all know uh, that this is challenging. It's especially challenging when we talk about the topic. Uh, actually, it's going to be challenging in lots of ways. What we're going to do starting this week and uh, each week is look at the different circles of relationships that we find ourselves in and talk about what does commitment look like within this circle. So I'm here to talk today about risky friendships. Uh, and we know that this is important because we are trying to maintain strong bonds of friendship while around us, what's happening is we're being pulled apart, right? This person thinks that if their group of people can just get on top and win, that everything will be great. And then this other person thinks that if the other uh, person's team can get on top, it's going to be the end of the world. And in this context, friendships get torn apart. And it's important this year. And it's important this weekend. Because this weekend is Packers-Vikings weekend, the weekend where friendships end, Right? <laughs> Uh, Greg talked last week uh, and did a really good job of talking about how in our culture of options, um, we can actually uh, be afraid of commitment. We can have commitment phobia. Uh, I'll go to a restaurant with someone and they'll spend 45 minutes looking at the menu because they're so concerned unless they make the perfect choice, they're going to have regrets and they take forever. And I'm like, just order already. I have a rule of thumb. Uh, there's only thing worse than a bad decision is a bad decision made slowly. Just order. It's just dinner, right? So on one hand, some of us can have commitment phobia. We're afraid of commitment. But there's another extreme that's not healthy either, commitment addiction. Because a high level of commitment to the wrong thing is not the kingdom. We're not in this series trying to glorify commitment. We're trying to glorify commitment to kingdom things within relationships. Uh, you all know what this is like. You have a, a, a husband or a father. High commitment to work, low commitment to family. Good deal or bad deal? Bad deal. High level of commitment to the wrong thing is actually the definition of idolatry. I have a high commitment to something that's not breathing life into me. But we can't get away from commitment as human beings. Uh, and the reason why is because we are made in the image of a commitment-making, commitment-keeping God. That God chooses and makes and sticks with commitments. And so this is hardwired into us. We are choosers. We make choices and we make commitments. We're different than uh, our other friends on this planet. Uh, like, for instance, animals. A, a dog can't make a commitment. Uh, if a dog could make a commitment, a dog would make that commitment and stick with it loyal all the way to death. If a cat could make a commitment, a cat would make a commitment and then break it and then look at you with that smirky cat face the cats have. Cats. All right. What does it mean for us to build the kind of friendships where we take risks we stay in commitments. 
and it produces fruit in our life. That's what I want to talk to you about. And when I think about a friendship like this, one of the ones that first came to mind when I was thinking about this is a strong friendship that we find in the, uh, in the Old Testament in the book of First Kings in chapter 19. You can scratch that down and look at the story if you want to explore it further. I've been spending a good bit of time in it over this last year. Uh, there's a prophet named Elijah. And uh, Elijah's got a tough job. Being a prophet in the Old Testament is a hard job. A significant role that the prophets played was saying hard things to a whole community, to the nation of Israel, reminding them where they had gotten off track. It's a hard job to tell someone else when they're getting it wrong, right? He's nearing the end of his ministry, and one of the last things that God tells him he's got to do is find a successor. Uh, and so he meets a younger guy named Elisha. Uh, he figures the name sounds almost the same. And so Elijah goes up to Elisha. He finds him. He's farming. He's got, uh, there's 12 teams of oxen, which is a little clue in the story that Elisha comes from means. He's got money. He's got options. And Elijah comes up to Elisha and puts his mantle on him, which is significant because what that means is my job is now your job. And there's a moment where Elisha has to make a decision. Will I take on this job? Elisha has to give up all the options that would come along with coming from his family to make, to make a commitment that would be a hard path. To make a commitment that Elijah, wherever he goes, I'm going to go. Where there's going to be a time period where we're going to have this friendship together. One prophet and now a younger prophet working together. What we might call prophet sharing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. So now Elisha says, just a minute, Elijah, I have to do something. He goes home and talks to his parents. He said, I got to talk to my mom and dad. And I can only imagine Elijah being like, I know when he goes home, mom and dad are going to remind him of the trust fund, remind him of all the options, tell him this is a terrible deal. They're going to remind him, Elisha, don't you know what happens to prophets? Why would you ever want to do that? And to Elijah's surprise, Elisha comes back and says, I will commit to following you. I will commit to this friendship. Uh, Elisha commits to it and says, there's just one more thing I got to do. He uh, takes the two oxen that he was driving and he sacrifices them because when you make these kinds of commitments, there's a little bit of blood involved. And then he takes his wooden plow and he actually burns the plow. A little bit of blood and a little bit of wood as a way of going public to show everybody, this is how committed I am to this friendship. Wonder if we'll ever see that anywhere else in the Bible. A little bit of blood and a little bit of wood as a public display of a commitment and following through. Now, um, when, I, uh, when I first was reading this, one of the things that I thought about, I rewound to um, a teaching given by our own uh, Dr. Paul Eddy, uh, who opened my eyes to something about commitment and relationships in a way that has really helped me see the whole scripture. Um, what he talked about in a relationship is when you, when you make a commitment under the umbrella of the kingdom, when you see a relationship forming like this, and in this this relationship, when you see a little bit of blood and some sacrifice and a relationship coming together, you're probably not far away from this word that we call covenant. He was the first person to show me that when you make a commitment like this in a relationship, um, we sometimes use, the, uh, we use math to think about relationships. So if I'm going to be in a friendship with someone else, then the friendship is the summary of me and them. I have my half and they have their half. 
But he said that's not the way these kind of friendships work in the Bible. When two people create a covenant kind of relationship, a committed friendship, what they actually do is they invite God into it, and God creates with them something new. This new thing is called the relationship. And investing in it and managing it and caring for it and building it and growing it is now the responsibility of both of these people. They have now created something that has to get cared for. And it's hard. Anybody here ever had a strong, committed friendship go south and lost a friend? That never happens, right? It totally happens. So I just wanted to take, there's, like, we could talk for hours about how to maintain, how to build and grow kingdom relationships of health and fruitfulness. I only have time to really talk about one of those things. So I was thinking and thinking like, okay, what book of the Bible has the most practical advice about how to manage relationships, how to help people get along? And of course, I thought of the same book that you're thinking right now, the book of Leviticus. So let's take a look at Leviticus <laughs> chapter 19. Uh, here's what the writer of Leviticus says. He's giving some practical advice about how God's people are supposed to interact with each other. Look what he says. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. I could end the sermon right there, right? Thank you. End of sermon. We all have a lot of work to do there. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I'm the Lord. Do not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Where does hate grow? in a relationship, in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. When I say the word rebuke, how do you feel? Ouch, right? That's a hard word. Another way to think about the word rebuke is to confront. Confront actually is a compound word. Con means together. Front means face. What you do in a relationship when you confront something The two of you face this relationship and what's not going well and what is going well, you face it together. You confront what's happening in this reality. Now, uh, a couple books that I'm really indebted to that if, uh, if this topic is uh, interesting and you want to look further, one of them is called Crucial Conversations and the other one is called Fierce Conversations and they're about the same thing. How do you have a conversation when things are not going well? And the importance of this is we know that in a relationship, when, when we're entering into conflict, what you say or what you don't say in that conversation has a disproportionate impact on that relationship. In that one conversation, you can do 10 years worth of work or you can undo 15 years worth of friendship. That's the kind of conversation we're talking about. How do you know when these are coming or when you're in one? Uh, uh, in uh, Joseph Granny's book, Crucial Conversations, he identifies three characteristics. You could write this down on the back of your bulletin. The first characteristic of a crucial conversation is there's high stakes. There's a lot involved. You're not talking with your friend or your spouse about which way to fold the towels in the bathroom. If you have a crucial conversation about that, there might be other problems, okay? It's a high-stakes conversation. There's a lot on the line. The second way you know you're in a crucial conversation, if there's opposing opinions. Y 
You are vehement that it should be one way, and your friend is vehement that it should be the other way. How do you handle that when it's about something high stakes? And then the third thing that makes it crucial is there's always strong emotion involved. And what you say or what you choose to not say in this instance has a disproportionate and large effect on the relationship. Now, God is actually the initiator of crucial conversations. Uh, In the very opening scenes of the Bible in Genesis, uh, Adam has decided to break relationship. God and Adam had this strong relationship together, and then Adam did something to break that relationship. He made a choice to not trust God and to go his own way. And so God comes to Adam with the first crucial conversation. Adam, where are you? And we find uh, that Adam, uh, Adam is hiding because Adam is shamed. And one of the reasons why this part of the Bible rings true for us is what do you and I feel when we've done something to break a relationship? What's one of the first emotions that we feel? We feel shame. And then because we feel ashamed of what we've done, then we think that we're not worthy of love. And then we crawl in the bushes and hide. And when we're in that spot, then God comes to us in the same way that he came to Adam. Adam, why are you hiding? They have a crucial conversation because it's high stakes. This relationship with God and human beings, look around our world. Is that thing high stakes? Absolutely. There's opposing opinions. God happens to think that he should be God, and Adam thinks that he should be God. Opposing opinions. And there's strong emotions because this is the God that only ever shows self-sacrificial, other-oriented, unconditional love. Strong emotion. God is the crucial conversation initiator with us. Now, one of the keys, if you have a, if you have a friendship, you have a relationship, and you're thinking of it right now, Maybe it's one that's going brilliantly. You're like, this is great. I don't need any of this stuff that Seth's talking about. Or maybe you're like, wow, I got one. I got one. I got four of these conversations I have to have. I have four of these relationships that are going poorly. How can you evaluate a relationship? How do you know if it's healthy? One of the key indicators of the health of a relationship, um, just imagine this is a big ham, and we're going to put a little thermometer in here. So if you want to check the health of your friendship... You want to, if you want to measure this one, one of the ways that you can look at it is like, what is the distance? What is the lag time between when you're offended by this friend and when you talk to them about what happened? Now, the Bible gives some instructions about not letting the sun go down on your anger. That's partly because of the culture that that was uh, in. If the Bible was written in the Midwest, it would have said like, don't let three months go by, right, with your anger. Because if you're anything like me, I struggle with lag time. You know, somebody does something to me and I, it, it hurts, it stings, they say something and I just think like, it's not that big of a deal. I shouldn't be so easily offended, but I am. And I don't talk about it. Or in my mind, I, I sort of picture this ladder. Like, there's some 10 things that you can do to, uh, in our friendship, but this one's like a one or a two shot. I should just let it go. But we all know that's not what happens. 
You let a one or two go, and then another one or two happens, and pretty soon you have a hundred ones and twos that add up to threes and fours that go up to sevens and eights that lead up to nines, and you're almost ready to throw in the towel on the friendship. Because there's something that's true about crucial conversations and conflict within relationships. If you're hurt and you don't talk it out, you will act it out. You will either put words to what you're feeling or your body will put words for you. Uh, You know, there's this like saying like, you may not murder someone, but we have this phrase like, if looks could kill, and we all know what looks those are, don't we? Leviticus were challenged to say, do not hate your brother in your heart. And Jesus pushed this even further when he said, hey, all of you guys don't murder, and that's fine. But if you hate someone in your heart, then you have murdered them. You haven't murdered their body, but they are now dead to you. Your two became a four, became an eight, became a ten, and now friendship has died. Friendship has died. And we see this play out in Genesis chapter 4, a story of two brothers, two strong friends. One of those brothers, uh, he's offended by his other brother, and he lets it stack up. And then God, the crucial conversation initiator, comes to him. Let's see it in Genesis 4. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. He wasn't sharing it. He wasn't sharing that anger, but he wasn't talking it out. His body was acting it out. His face was down, and so the Lord said to Cain, he leads with the question, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Any of you ever been in a friendship relationship with someone where no matter how many times you've tried to solve the problem, you just can't seem to, and it's a mixture of sadness and anger, and your head is hanging, and you're frustrated, and no matter how you try to talk about it, you just don't get anywhere? Has that ever happened to anybody? This is a good reminder for us that this is one of the main things that, um, uh, that makes up real prayer. If your prayer is not full of you sharing the things that makes your head hang low, the things that make your blood boil, because when you can't trust to talk honestly to someone else about it, there is one person who you can always trust to talk about why you're really angry, why you're really frustrated with no judgment and no consequences. This is what prayer is. If your prayer is boring, maybe it's because you're not talking, having a crucial conversation with God about the real stuff that's going on. And Cain hates his brother in his heart, and after so long, where he's not willing to talk it out, he acts it out. It's the first murder in the Bible, and it started in his heart. Leviticus tells us that rebuking each other is part of what makes a risky friendship healthy, to have the conversation that we don't want to have. Now, if you're like me, you don't want to have the conversation. You hope that it will go away. I don't want to have conflict. But there are some others of us in here who don't relate to that at all. When they hear that the Bible instructs them to rebuke their neighbor, they're fully ready. They're like, great, awesome. The Bible told me to rebuke it. I love rebuking people. I try to tell everybody exactly what's wrong with them. And so now I'm going to go home after church, and I'm going to go knock on that neighbor's door and tell him, your yard is a mess. It looks like a garage sale all year long. You should clean it up. I'm just rebuking you, frankly. No. When we say neighbor, the Bible isn't talking about the person who lives in the house adjacent to you. When the Bible says neighbor, it's the person who life brings near to you. 
The person that life brings near to you is the person who you rebuke with frankness. Now, uh, for lots of us uh, who have jobs, we head off to workplaces, to warehouses and restaurants and work sites and boardrooms where life has brought some other people near to us, right? Um, you ever been on a team where rebuking each other, frankly, never happened? Been on a team with another coworker who's always slacking off, takes twice as many smoke breaks, and anytime a hard job has to get done, he disappears in the break room, and then you find out he just got a raise and got promoted above you? And don't you want to have a frank conversation in that? Stories told about a consultant. We're going to call him Frank. Frank got called into a business's leadership team, seven other staff members. They're having some problems, and they need some help working it out. So Frank shows up. He says, like, let's do a day and a half worth of meetings. And he shows up. And by the, uh, by the snack break of the first day, all seven members of the team have come to him independently to tell him who the real problem is on the team. And everyone's decided that it's Lisa. Now, they're in a meeting. Uh, and uh, Tom, one of the more boisterous members of the groups, after an hour and a half of beating around the bush with all the problems, Tom finally blurts out in a meeting, Lisa, you're a jerk. You never get your work done on time. What happened in that meeting? Everyone dead silent, looking down at the ground. What's going to happen? Frank goes over to the whiteboard, because he's done this before. And he writes up on the whiteboard. In the top left corner, he writes, Lisa, you're a jerk. And in the bottom right corner, he says, you never get your work done on time. He says, we're going to come back to this up here, which is a brilliant move. You know why? This is what happens in groups of people all the time. How do, just in your own imagination, how do you feel for Lisa around the circle after Tom just said, Lisa, you're a jerk. You never get your work done on time. How do you feel? We feel bad for her, right? And our first instinct in a situation like this is we imagine if we were that person, what we would want other people to do is to jump in and rescue us because Lisa needs to get rescued from this because she's a jerk, right? She's not a jerk. That's a judgment. But the problem is in our, in our misguided reaching out for mercy and empathy, we reach out to collapse the judgment to say, Lisa, you're not a jerk. But does Lisa never get her work done? So Frank goes around the circle and asks one by one, Chelsea, does Lisa get her work done on time? No, she doesn't. Chuck, does Lisa get her work done? No. Most all of us show up with all the things that we need to get done, and Lisa almost never has her stuff. Lisa's not a jerk. But Lisa doesn't get her work done on time. After everyone goes around in the circle and says, that's true, Lisa, you don't get your work done on time, what does Lisa do? She stands up in front of the group and says, we've been working on this team for two years, and every one of you in this circle knows that I'm struggling to get my work done on time, and after two years, none of you has ever told me that, and you wait till we bring a stranger consultant in here, and then you all tell him? The most cruel thing that we can do in a relationship is to not tell the truth to someone else when they need to hear it. And do you know where the place that this happens the most is? One of the places this happens the most is the church. 
because we suffer from a disease called terminal niceness. We want to make sure that no one ever feels like a jerk, which is true. No one's a jerk, but some people aren't getting their work done on time. You know what I'm saying, right? You go out to dinner, and you have some Caesar salad in your tooth, and you're with eight other friends, and you hang out all night long with friends, and then you get home, and there's Caesar salad in your tooth, and you call your best friend, Joe, did I have the salad in my tooth the whole night? He goes, yeah, you did. Why didn't you say anything? And what he says is, I didn't want to embarrass you, right? Thanks a lot, because now you embarrass me to everybody at the party. This happens in families. We've all been in this small group. One person talks all the time, and everyone's frustrated by it, but nobody says anything about it. Rebuke your neighbor. Why don't we? I tell you the truth. Here's the reason why we don't, because we believe a lie. We believe that if we tell our friend the truth, we can't tell the truth and keep our friend. We think that if we tell the truth, the friendship will be over. And there's a reason we believe that, because sometimes when we tell the truth, the friendship is over. Because there's seasons of a risky friendship. I just want to lay these out to you real quick. Friendships are always easy when they start. Because you never start a friendship with someone who you don't have chemistry with. You're like, I like this person. We love the same stuff. We like the same music. We like hanging out. They think I'm funny. I think they're funny. And so you have a forming period of your friendship. This is known as the honeymoon period of a friendship. Everything is golden. How long does that last? Not real long, unless it's on Facebook. And then you can stay there for a long time. (laughs) The next phase of a friendship is called storming. This is the time when friends get real. And this is the time when friends get broken. And I tell you what happens in our culture. It happens to me. It's my temptation. I love this phase of friendship. You get through the storming phase and then things get normal. And then in the best cases, like things thrive. People are flourishing. I want to just get here to here instantaneously. I want instimacy. I want it to happen fast. I want it to be perfect. But the truth is, we have to go through this phase. Um, And this phase is hard. Because telling the truth and listening to the truthfulness of someone else requires a skill that we struggle with It's called vulnerability. And the reason why it's important and the reason why the church above any other place should take this real seriously, I'm going to go back to Leviticus chapter 19, ask them to pull that slide back up again. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share their guilt. The cost of withholding the truth when someone else needs to hear it 
means that we are both responsible for the state of our relationship. I'm responsible for my friend. My friend is responsible for me. And this flies against everything that we have in our culture because we say when, whenever truth or conflict or storming is going on, what we can say is like, I'm going to check out, let you do you, and let me do me. Except in the church, that's not the way it works. Because the church isn't a building. The church is people. The church is just relationships. But the church is covenant relationships. The church is risky relationships. The church is based on relationships of commitment. The church is based on relationships of commitment to tell your neighbor the truth, to rebuke your neighbor frankly. Because that lie that we believe that if I tell the truth, I'm going to lose a friend, actually in the kingdom of God, it's exactly the opposite. And in relationships all over the place. Because the people at your work aren't that different than the people in, your, in here. We have the same needs, the same things we long for. We long for belonging. We all know that our lives aren't perfect. You know? What Kendrick Lamar said, look at my imperfections, look at my imperfections, look at my flaws. If you're my friend and you can't look at my imperfections and my flaws, you can't be my friend. Okay, if you don't know who Kendrick Lamar is and you're a little bit older, that's okay. Leonard Cohen also said, love is not a victory march, right? It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. It's a long march in the same direction of commitment and struggle. It takes a little bit of blood. And it takes a little bit of wood to make a friendship like that. Uh, okay, I have one last drawing, and then we have a short video of a story about a risky friendship, and then I'm going to close up. Why is it that we struggle to be vulnerable? Here's one of the reasons, okay? This is you. I'm going to draw a bunch of marbles in here, some of them big, some of them small. And if your life is anything like mine, some of these things are bright white. There are amazingly beautiful things about you. Some of you think that all of your marbles in here are dark. Somehow in our lives we bought into the lie of shame that we're unlovable, that we're not worthy of love. And that's not true. You are worthy of love, not because of the kind of marbles that you have in your life. You're worthy of love because the God of the universe created you and will never stop loving you. That's why you're worthy of love. It's truth. Now, at the same time, some of you think that everything in your life is white. You, when I say you're worthy of love, you go, you're darn right I am. I'm God's gift to the world. The truth about you, there's darkness in you. The problem is we all live our lives in two different ways. There's a line. I'm going to draw a plus sign over here and a minus sign here. We're all aware of ourselves to a certain degree. We're aware that there's good things about us and we're aware that there's darkness about us. But the truth for all of us is that our self-awareness is limited. We don't know everything about ourselves. There's things over here that we don't know about. There's ways that you're an amazing person that you can't see. And there are ways that you're full of darkness that you can't see. 
One of the reasons why you make a risky commitment of friendship is because someone else can help you see these. This is your friend. It's your friend's job to affirm the parts that you both can see. It's your job to speak truthfully and say, this is, these are the parts of my life, to enter into vulnerability, to say, I'm going to let you see me. I'm going to show up. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to withdraw. I'm not perfect, but I can still show up in this relationship. And it's your friend's job to help you see the Caesar salad in your teeth that everybody else in your group sees, but no one else has what my grandfather would call good old-fashioned courage. At the end of the day, a risky friendship just requires good old-fashioned courage in two ways. Sometimes you have to open your mouth courageously and speak the truth to a friend. And if you've ever had to do this, you know how hard this is. This is not easy. But it also requires courageous listening. Are you willing to look at the parts of yourself that you wish that other people didn't see? The problem is they see it. There's no choice. There's no getting out of this one. To illustrate what a relationship, a friendship like this looks like around trust and vulnerability, uh, we asked Troy, one of our staff members, to, uh, to tell the story of one of his risky friendships. Let's pay attention to the side screens, and then I'll come back and close up our sermon. True friend to me is someone that you can trust, one that you can push back on, one that you can be stretched you're also that they can push back on you one that can challenge you to look at different directions so that's not always about just you back in uh, 2003 I started here at Woodland Hills when I first started here it was more or less I came to work that's all I wanted to do just like any normal job asked me to do something that's what I did um, I didn't uh, plan on investing myself into any type of I guess Christian roles or anything like that I was hired as a custodian or a maintenance guy. It wasn't until about a year that I was actually in um, the facilities area and working that I ran into Janice and got to know her. When it started out, I just uh, didn't trust her at all. I always thought her to be more from the suburban world and myself more from the urban world. What does this person want to do with me when they come from uh, having what they want? versus a person that comes from not having as much. Trust was huge for me back then. I didn't trust nobody. She was willing to learn from me. She didn't come to me as the know-it-all. She'd ask me questions, you know, what, what was life like living, you know, more on the Lower East Side? What was, you know, so she was just as invested in what my life was about that I was kind of like invested in like, well, what was her life like? Investing time, more like a parent, even though we were uh, uh, friends versus versus anything, any role like that, that's what stuck out to me the most. This lady would invest in, wanted to show me how to do a budget. Some of the weirdest things were uh, helping me find uh, cars online. She's got her own things to worry about. Why, why worry about that I'm drowning in debt. The 
trust started to grow, the relationship started to grow, the walls started to come down, you know, more of the barriers started to come down and just realized that uh, we were on a path to, you know, really building a solid relationship. Like, I feel very comfortable with challenging her and she feels very comfortable challenging with me because that's the type of relationship we built. We built to try and stretch one another and try and understand that, you know, we both, you know, might not have the right answers and that we got to work on those things to, in order to grow the, the relationship. Don't get me wrong, sometimes it, you can throw in the towel and say it's over. I think both of us would say that, you know, and but at the same time, we just don't do that. The commitment, the trust, the risk, being able to say it's okay, that if there's a mess inside of it, that we're gonna work through it and we're gonna try and figure out how can we get through that. It might be where you're offended. I mean, I'm sure, and uh, if Janice was sitting here with me today, he would say, definitely I've offended her. I've been disappointed, I've been maybe offended. I, you know, and I, for sure I probably was offended. You know, it's some of the things or suggestions that she's given me. I mean, but I think the beauty of it is that we're able to work together with it and understand that even though we might offend one another or we might upset one another, that in the end result that we work them things out and we understand that it's better for us to voice that with each other than to, to hide it and go our separate ways. If I went to took that risk and I went to took that chance and I went to took uh, I went to took the time to trust, I don't think I would have ever learned the stuff I've learned. I'm more open, uh, probably a lot more trusting, and um, I think more committed. Yeah. Uh, leading researcher on trust and vulnerability, uh, Brene Brown wrote a book called Daring Greatly. Uh, that title comes from a pretty inspirational quote uh, from an American president who talked about how courage does not belong to the person who sits on the sidelines of relationships criticizing where they go right and wrong in the arena. Courage belongs to the person who is willing to step into the arena and show up, knowing that it may not all go well, that there'll be wounds and there'll be blood and there'll be sweat and there'll be dirt. It will be ugly, but it will also be beautiful. Courage belongs to the person who is willing to dare for something great. She talks about vulnerability as being necessary because at the end of the day, if you're like me, there's some amazing parts of me, and there's not amazing parts of me. And if you're like me, I'm looking for a place to belong the way that I am, not the way that I wish I was. Vulnerability, she defines, is like not being over-vulnerable, right? We can't get to intimacy. What she talks about is vulnerability is being willing to share your thoughts, experiences, hurts, and joys with someone who has earned your trust. Trust is earned by being vulnerable and speaking truthfully and doing one of the things that Troy said. Uh, he said, either one of us could have thrown in the towel. Throwing in the towel, is that language of courage? 
Throwing in the towel is the language of cowards, right? Good old-fashioned courage is what risky friendships are built on. And they're not built in grand gestures. Brene Brown says they're built one marble at a time, one part of me at a time that you see and I can see that we bring from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. One bit by one bit, one brick by one brick, you build relationships like that. Why? Why is this important? Because the church is people. Church is made up of friendships. Friendships where we call each other to these kinds of things, where we create safety and trust and courage. Because it's also the church's job to reach outside of our walls and to bring people who don't have a sense of belonging into a community where there's enough love to go around. I think this is something that Jesus taught about. We don't simply do this for our own sake. We do it for our sake and for the sake of the people that were around, the people that we're reaching. Because at the end of the day, this is what happened with Elijah and Elisha. It wasn't just a strong friendship. It was a friendship that was forged because of something they were called to by God. You see, a real risky commitment in friendship means somebody else is not just invested in seeing you be more fully you, they're interested in seeing you fulfill your purpose and calling in your life. How has God uniquely created you to invest in the kingdom of God and to meet the pain of the world? And so I'm asking you, Woodland Hills, where is there a crucial conversation that you're in the lag time right now and a two is becoming a three is becoming a five? Where is a relationship that needs your courageous showing up right now? If you're at a nine and you can't even imagine having this conversation and you hear me say like, it's a lie that you can't tell the truth and keep a friend, but in your head you go, no, it's not. If I tell the truth, it will be the end of this. Where does courage to face conflict like that come from? You don't walk these conversations alone. The spirit is with you. You can lean on God. Some of you are sitting here and it's hard to hear this message because you've broken commitments. Maybe for you, behind you, there's a wake of relationships that you never made it through the storming phase. And there's a potential that you walk out of here instead of inspired to reach out to people, you walk out of here with more shame. And I just want to say, the kingdom of heaven is filled with grace. No one is expected to be perfect at relationships. The only thing that you can do when you fall down is just get up and try again. That's courage. Courage isn't being perfect. Courage is willing to pick yourself up off the ground and say, I, with God's help, I can do this, but I'm not going to quit. Because quitting means living a life in a world alone. And nobody wants that. None of us want that. Maybe you're at a spot around church where you go, I've been here for a year or two weeks. I don't have any relationships here. Just have news for you. Out in the gathering area, we're having an involvement fair a way for you to make some connections, for you to get yourself into a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor kind of place where life can bring you near to other people who are part of Woodland Hills. Would you take a step? Elisha, in a grand gesture, cuts two oxen and burns the plow as a public commitment that seems grandiose, but in reality, 
That's his public commitment. His life then turns into a following up on that commitment with a little bit of blood and a little bit of wood. He followed through on his commitment one day at a time, one marble at a time, sort of one step at a time. Would you take a step? Where's God calling you to burn the plow? Would you stand and let me say a prayer for you? Spirit, we submit our lives to you. Uh, I can't know where everyone in this room is, but you do. You are on the inside of every individual experience in this room. And I just pray that you would take these words, take the myths that we believe about ourselves, that we're not worthy of love, that we should stay in our shame, that we should hide from each other, that it's too risky to reach out. I pray that you would replace those lies with courage, with commitment, with dependency, with vulnerability, with trust. Because you said part of our job while we're waiting for you to return is we're supposed to be ironing the wrinkles out of our dress. And by that, it means ironing the wrinkles out of our relationships with each other. I pray you would give us the courage to speak truthfully and to listen to the truth and respond to it. In your name we pray. Amen. Prayer teams will be up front. Have a great week.